I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Next up for me, Fairy Tale by Stephen King. Uh, I read... Stephen King. Yeah, I read one other Stephen King years ago, and I've always been like, I kind of want to try him out again, especially if I could find something that's a little more clean. Uh, unfortunately, like this, this was a, I enjoyed the book and it was a cool story. Uh, but honestly, I wasn't that impressed. I was kind of like Stephen King. What were you not impressed by? Like, what were you impressed by and what were you not impressed by? I was impressed by Stephen King's just ability to write a great story, even though it was I actually thought it was quite a cliche uh, plot. Hmm. And I wasn't... The reason I, I enjoyed it was not because it was such a cool story. Frankly, I thought, like, the story's kind of like, meh. But he's just good at writing characters. He's good at writing dialogue, uh, describing things really well. Yeah, that's where I see his strengths being, Yeah, is like... He just seems to effortlessly write ridiculously believable characters in dialogue, but the the other his plots sometimes suffer, in my opinion. The other Stephen King book I read also had an amazing plot, uh, but the big problem for me, obviously, is just there's so much like swearing in it. Oh my it's just goodness, like, yeah, it is an absolute not recommend. It's brutal. Like people should not read it yeah. because of that, which just sucks. I like I wish I could read Stephen King clean. Like the clean version, <laughs> like a drunk. Do you remember growing up? We had TV Guardian. Yes, I want the I don't TV even Guardian. Understand how Stephen this technology King. worked back in the day? Like I genuinely don't. But it would like take out swear words, and then you would just have a subtitle there, and it would replace it with something. But or it was sometimes it. quite comedic <laughs> because if one. you put on the most like extreme setting, it would sometimes. I don't know. I think it would replace ass with tail and sometimes you would just have like it, it would make sense really like, oh, that's funny like a bad tail person which i know owen's sister <laughs> likes to replace that word with donkey which is so funny like she, it's not even something she does really to be funny anymore i think it started off as a joke but now it's like seamlessly integrated in her that's into awesome. her conversational style is she'll just be like oh yeah that's a really bad donkey move and i'm like wait i have to like do mental math to like figure out what she meant and i'm like wait <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know that's not the right term, but, but it like takes you a second because some of our like swear conjugations, for lack of a better term, like swanjugations, <laughs> swanjugations, sounds like different breeds of pigs. But um, I was thinking swan. Oh yeah, no, I don't know why I went to swine and not swan. This is like one of those ink blot tests. Like, what do you hear when you when you hear this word? But anyway, um, I had to, some of them are just so weird, like saying bad so you can bleep this out later jake bad ass or like it's like oh smart ass dumb ass like all these things don't really make any sense so when you hear them in another context like with the word donkey it literally takes me a second to understand what you mean by it <laughs> anyway that was fun anyways <laughs> do not read it but <laughs> i am curious like you say that the plot was cliched do you want to give like a couple like a quick overview of what the story was about it's called fairy tale yeah it's basically he finds a magic well the well takes him to another world. In that world, it's all the fairy tale, like all the fairy tales that we have in our world, basically were like amalgamated together. So like, so it's Narnia but with swearing. 
Yes. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like of, Narnia meets Shrek. And then he has to... <laughs> you've heard of Narnia for Nihilus. Now Narnia for a, adults, Wait, I, I actually guess? haven't heard of Narnia for Nihilus. What is that? Uh, you, <laughs> Aslan dies, but just doesn't come back to life. <laughs> Also, spoiler alert, but <laughs> the main character comes back to life. Yes, yes, yes no, yes. We, we've read this before. Um, you mentioned Narnia for Nihilists in a H.G. Wells novel? Yeah, so I referred to The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Throwback to the first podcast. The first one. Uh, still, still possibly my favorite H.G. Wells book. Okay. Um, uh, as Narnia for Nihilists. Um, I... I th- I don't think that I think the jaunt by Stephen King short story. I don't think that has any bad words in it because BBC Radio produced it. Yeah, I don't think it does, and it's my favorite short story from him. It's, ex- it, it's, it's excellent. Yeah, I say that his plots suffer. His, that plot doesn't suffer. Yeah, yeah. but you think his short stories often don't because you sort of need a plot for a short story. I don't know. Whatever. I'm, I, I don't actually yeah. know enough about the genre to say that confidently. Yeah. You're up next, though. <sighs> okay. Joe Michael, I want to hear your thoughts on this one too. Um, I've, I don't think so we've ever. Put has more anyone here read Story and... Brand by Donald Miller? Mm-mm. Okay, it's like a business book that came highly recommended to me by many people, and I, I had some clients I was working for. I was a little bit doing a slightly bigger role than just graphic design, like a little bit more strategic stuff. So I wanted to read this book. Very mixed feelings about it. The the, the essential premise is that basically, we think that when you're trying to sell your company that you or or your company is the hero or your product maybe is the hero. And it's like, no, the customer is the hero and that you are the guide. So you aren't Luke Skywalker. You are Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda, essentially. So you tell them a story and you set up a villain and you... And he basically... it's When you read it, it's actually quite brilliant. And you when he gives examples of how that actually works its way into different branding and or marketing mm. things, it's it really makes sense where it's like, oh yeah, that is so much more compelling. What I disliked about the book was the tone. I talk about this a lot with books where maybe tone shouldn't be such a big factor, but tone feels close to equally weighted to me sometimes as content. And that's, that's a weakness, I'll probably admit. But his tone kind of drove me nuts. Um, he had this very kind of smug attitude of like, I've seen a million movies and read a bajillion books and they all have the same plot line. And he just has this very oversimplified kind of view of cinema and, and books and sort of took any kind of mystery or, or interestingness out of it to me. So I would say if you're, if you have a reason to read this as like a marketer, which I think maybe you, you two do potentially, I would say like, it's a good read, but prepare to be mildly kind of annoyed. I think I also just am also sometimes annoyed at when people sort of co-opt, they're like, they're a marketer and they're like, I'm a storyteller, mm. um, which I'm guilty of saying that. Probably all of us are guilty of saying that, but I still don't like it. I think it's, yeah. I think it's disrespectful to the actual, that's the thing. I think this book felt disrespectful to actual storytellers. Um, but as a marketing book, if you get past that, it's a great marketing book. I feel like that's a classic business book thing. Is totally, to like totally use a tone that feels a little bit aggressive, a little bit arrogant, sometimes actually aggressive. But you don't have to, because some of my favorite business books don't have that tone at all. Cal Newport, I mean, that's they're fair. not really business books, but his books have a such a refreshing tone, where it's very like professorial. Mm. Um, I say professorial because I almost wanted to say pastoral, and then I realized that these are secular books. But <laughs> so professorial is like the next best word I can think of. I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I agree, though it doesn't... 
there's something like, so I listened to a couple business books this year and it doesn't have to be aggressive, but I do feel like business books always seem to have this need to prove like, Hey, like I'm the one, like I'm in the trenches. You're not learning from someone who hasn't won. I've won. Oh and yeah. It, it like, it's like, Oh, that's super arrogant. But also to be fair, I only want to read books from people who've actually succeeded. Maybe they don't have to tell me that because I wouldn't have picked it up in the first place. But yeah. I don't mind it a little bit. I just usually I get, wish it would I, I dial understand back. why they're doing it. Like I'm sure there's market research behind it. And yeah. maybe books like maybe books like uh whatever, stuff from Cal Newport has succeeded against the odds. Right. Like maybe but 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 I'm just saying my own experience with it is that it's a red flag for me and I feel distrust for you as an author. When you're yelling at me trying to prove why I should only listen to you and not anyone else. Maybe that works in the market, and that's why they're doing it, but it, it's a huge red flag for me. I hate it. What was the title again of the book? Story Brand. Story Brand. So, I don't know. I've, I'm, like, simultaneously recommending it and not. I think if, if, if you feel like that's a message you need to hear and learn more about, go read it. Okay. How long was the book? Because uh, I'm, on, I'm on the fence where I'm kind of like, it sounds like a book I would actually be interested in reading, but it also sounds like I wouldn't want to spend too much time in it. 250 pages. My recommendation would be don't do the audiobook, get the physical copy and skim. Cool. That way you can also read there's a few sections that were a bit bloated and then a few that had great information and that way you could keep going back to the sections that were really useful to you but not waste too much time on this book. Uh my next book is Culture Making by Andy Crouch. Yes. Hey. Woo. Okay, so am I the fourth person to read the book here? <laughs> yes. All right. So I really enjoyed it. I had never read anything by Andy Crouch before, um, and I really, really enjoyed culture making. Uh, he's talking about how Christians should think about culture uh, and thinking about it as not sort of being Christians versus culture, but Christians uh, as participants and even leaders in culture. Um, I, I thought it was actually really good. It was a really good sort of uh, perspective shift type book. Um, but I will say it is a book I'm going to have to go back and read again. It definitely felt like a, a, two or three passes on this one would really get the meat out. If that makes sense. I've been meaning to reread it as well. It it really was quite impactful to me when I read it. So I think another pass could be good later in life. I read it like maybe four years ago now. It's actually one of like yeah, same. when I first started to like read books like four years ago. Mm. <laughs> uh, it was I don't even know why I picked it up. I think maybe it was because you recommended it, Jake, but yeah. I was just like, oh, sounds interesting and read it. And like, I remember really enjoying it, kind of opening up new vistas for me, but I bet you I would get a ton more out of it now. Hmm. I think I want to reread that um, because I think I get caught in the trap of, because for me going into ministry is so meaningful, is it, because going into ministry for me has been such a path of meaning and value I get caught in the trap of feeling like that's the only thing I can recommend to people who are struggling for purpose and meaning. Like, well, you could like go and tell people about the gospel in some capacity. And that's not right. Like fundamentally, I don't believe that. Like the, you know, uh, sort of that, that deep reformed conviction that you can be a, you know, uh, a carpenter to the glory of God, that you can do all, all things genuinely fully Genesis mandate to the glory of God. But sometimes I struggle to have the right language to do that. And so I want to like re-reflect on kind of what he was talking about, like, you know, to, to tend the garden, whatever that looks like in the modern context is the locale of, of purpose and meaning because God made us to do that. And so trying to, trying to get better language for that is something I want to, I want to work on too. Yep. 
Oh, I'm, I'm next. You're up next. How dare you? Uh, typology, James M. Hamilton Jr. <clears throat> Very conflicted about this book. Uh, I was required reading for a uh, class I took. Um, off the off the, the cuff, it's just an awful book to read. It just is. Uh, it's unreadable. <laughs> Strong pitch. <laughs> no, it, it's just. It's un, and, and listen, because and I hope uh, Dr. Hamilton didn't intend this to be a like uh, engaging cover to cover read. It's a comment. It's a better commentary reference book than it is a readable book. He, if I'm being totally honest, he structured the book chiastically. The whole book is is a giant chiastic structure. Which is really clever. Also, I don't makes, know what that is. Yeah, so chiastic is is um, it's 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 wildly not not to say common is understating it is everywhere in, in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's 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 a structure that goes A B C C B A. Oh, it's right. like a palindrome kind of vibe. It's, it's yeah. like a B with the center being the most. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the the core of whatever, and there's different ways of structuring it, but the core of, and this is in Hebrew poetry, it's in literary structures, it's everywhere. The core is the center is the most important, and it, and then and then it loops back up to the point. So massive portions of Genesis are like like chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters are gigantic chiastic structures. You know, will you have like Abraham will lie about Sarah? And then he arbitrarily does it again later on. And I, we believe that happened. But also the way that the authors have structured the narrative is that those are two pairs that are corresponding. And you'll realize what's ever before them and after them also corresponds. And there's deep theological points that are right at the center, Whoa. which is a much more like once you understand that that's often what the Hebrew authors are doing. All of a sudden, you, you trace it and you, okay, so where's the center? You find the center, and it's like this passage, this little, almost throwaway passage about like God blessing the nations or something. And you're like, no, no, no. God blessing the nations was the thrusting heartbeat of like these, these this section of like 15 chapters. I'm so glad I asked what that word meant. Yeah. It, it actually is one of the best hermeneutical tools, like as far as just like a good rule of thumb, like, hmm, random story. I know there's another random story. I, like, later or earlier that it kind of like reminds me of I always check for a chiasm because there's it's in the New Testament too it's in so many of the Psalms like more Psalms than not are chiastically structured could you maybe do this so that I don't have to try to find other books about that and then get me a book that I would enjoy reading about that no and here's why (laughs) here's why you should still get this book though okay so again Dr. Hamilton told us to read it cover to cover it's, which is just a nightmare of an experience because we don't think chiastically. He's, I mean, he's very clever for doing this in his book. It's just Western readers don't think chiastically. So it, the yep. whole book is not fun to read. However, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I intend to reference this book every single time I structure a sermon for the rest of my life because the amount of work that man did in order to mine the Bible for every link, cross-link, every loop of narrative, anytime Jesus referenced a thing that references another thing, that book is so dense, which is part of the reason why it's unreadable. But every time you go to a part, and it's also, it's well-sourced in the back. So as just a reference volume, if you're doing a little bit of Bible study, just pop open and be like, wow, does Hamilton link this to anything? Hint, he will have. It will just, like, like, like a crisp pop on a bubbly, open up, Parts of the Bible that you've never realized were connected before. So yeah, it's a book that I, the, the copy I own probably in 30 years is going to be beaten up, doggy eared, worn for me referencing stuff in it. Can you, can you remind me what the title was? Typology. Typology. James Hamilton. 
it's it's just an excellent reference book to have. Um, Dr. Hamilton's not great at crafting narratives that are readable. Um, and this is true for other books I've read by him. Do you think chiology? Chi- what was it? Chiastic. Chiastic, sorry. I mixed up typology and chiology. Well, sorry. It's chiastic structures. The chiastic structure is not the main point of the book. The point is type... The point... Sorry. I, this, should, sure. this should be clarified. Typology is just a massive theme that Hebrew yep. authors use. The book is called typology because typology is one of the best ways to understand okay. almost everything in the Bible. It is so helpful. For, so, so you'll have like a New Testament author. They reference this that Jesus did something and it's and this was in order to fulfill the prophecy. You check out the prophecy and you're like, what the heck? This prophecy has barely anything to do with what Jesus said. What's going on here? The way they understood prophetic fulfillment is that particular passage in Ezekiel was riffing off a theme that has been looped and duplicated many times throughout the Bible previously. And there's an essence to that particular typological theme that Ezekiel's riffing off of. And then Jesus, when he says or does something, is doing whatever that particular typological theme was. And whatever the details are, are completely incidental. If you know the core of what the Hebrew authors were, were vibing with the whole time. Okay. So for example, like when you have, um, when you have, uh, the, the passage of Sarah taking Hagar and giving him to, uh, and giving Hagar to, Abraham, all the verbiage around that is she took, she saw that it was good, took and gave to her husband. And then you should be like, bing, 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 Genesis three language. And so without saying a single word about the morality of, of what, of what, um, Sarah and, and Abraham are up to, every smart Hebrew author would have been like, that's the exact language and system and verbiage of the whole Genesis three, taking the fruit thing. This is very bad. And it's little notes like that that the Hebrew authors brilliantly and ultimately God and his sovereignty empowered them to do have these little notes, these little, hey, remember this little wink? Remember this little part of the narrative that we read before that was really bad? It's going on. It's mm-hmm. going on. Um, okay. Little thing, you know, and these are the ones, and then you kind of go to the ones we know, which is Solomon and he had a bunch of horses from Egypt and we're all like, nice, horses from Egypt. And that's the one of the three things that the kings were never supposed to do boom, and you're like, hey, Solomon's going downhill. Hmm. They don't say, by the way, Solomon sucked because he did this and this. They just expect you to be a good scholar. So, yep. Long-winded. Typology is a great book okay. for, for, you to, for you to have on your bookshelf. Okay. Sounds good. I'm just thinking like, there's probably people listening to this being like, wow, that sounds super nerdy and like definitely not going to read that book. Um, but there are tools like typology, like chiastic structures, looking for themes and like almost like the formula that you were saying seeing taking desiring um that helps unlock the old testament i just think like you know if this was just about like doing this with classic literature or something like that it's like take it or leave it totally understand if you don't want to be like nerdy about that but if we want to be people who read the old testament well we need to be committed to reading the way reading scripture the way scripture wants us to read it even on a selfish level i know a lot of people who are very devoted to wanting to spend time reading their bible and they struggle to read the old testament because of how oh, yeah. weird it is and so even just on a selfish level it's like you might actually be more this is such a bad word for it but you might be more entertained if you i i have a very bad understanding of it um but even just the things i have picked up and learned have made it a much more enjoyable read for me. Yeah. And 
maybe one kind of bracket onto this too is, you know, a lot of this stuff comes from very good her- hermeneutics and the grammatical historical method of exegesis. What I kind of love about this is this is just deeply conservative theologians who, because they come to the Bible with the presupposition that this is God's word to humans, asterisk, there's a bunch of ways you can articulate that balanced and well, but fundamentally, this is a spirit-inspired, God-breathed, inerrant word, then we then in order to do rever- to like revere this text, we want to understand the historical context, the human authors, the 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 themes, the literary traditions, all this stuff. It is because that's an act of understanding the piece of scripture that God gave us. And so these very conservative, high Bible theologians just you know grab their um, their textbooks, learn the Near Eastern context, and then really work hard. To, to create, to understand the Bible well. And and because of that, we have this tradition spanning hundreds of years now of, of really, people have really paid close attention to the Bible. And I love that. And Southern, the seminary that we're at, is just committed to that. And it's cool. It's, fun. it's really fun to be able to read books from cool. theologians who love Jesus and want to understand what the Bible is all about. <clears throat> also, most of this stuff is not like... Like if you read the Bible enough, you read it over and over and over, you, you'll start seeing these thematic connections. So it's not even necessarily like... Oh, you have to go read all sorts of ancient history and things like that to get it. Uh, so, just like, just as an encouragement to yeah, people, yeah. you don't have to be reading ten books to to get at this stuff necessarily. Um, reading the Gospels wisely by Jonathan Pennington uh, is my next book. Really good. Uh, I took a whole course on the Book of Matthew uh, last semester, and just a lot of stuff generally on the Gospels, and then specifically on Matthew, and. This is a great book. It's another one where it's like, you want tools for your tool belt on how to read the Gospels well? That's what this entire book is about. It's fairly short. Uh, well, yeah, 250 pages, so I guess average. Just like, this is the kind of book I'm going to come back to eventually. Cool. And uh, that's it. Cool. Uh, my next book was The Body Keeps the Score by... Uh, Let's go! Uh, what was his name again? Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. I was fascinated. I couldn't put it down. My only critique would be that um, I think some of it could have been dialed back in how graphic some of the descriptions of the stories were. It's, the stories are primarily stories of sexual assault and war PTSD, like veterans. Um, and some of them absolutely needed to be as detailed as they were. Whereas like this just, And then some of them I was like, okay, I think you actually could have maintained the same impact, journalistic and scientific integrity and not gotten quite that in the weeds. Um, whatever, far be it for me as a, a lay person to, to critique that, but I think I would be more happy to recommend this to people if it was just a little bit less intense. Like still, it obviously has to be intense. It's literally a book about trauma. Some of the stories were like, whoa. Anyway. That's a, that's a helpful. I, I wouldn't have made that critique. Um, but I'm glad you did. Glad, glad you kind of brought that to the table. I'm not usually someone who who says okay. that. Usually, I'm I'm like, I think that graphic things have impact and are are usually there for a reason and stuff. Right. This is one of the first times where I read a book. Okay. I was like, I that's think that's I'm. This didn't need to be quite okay. so crazy. I'm I'm actually very helpful because I recommend that book a lot, and so that'll help oh, me. Please put a- give trigger like eight. 20 trigger warnings. Okay. I mean, I'm sure the book kind of is like a walking trigger warning, but yeah. yeah. Um. I think I'd, I've gotten desensitized with the amount of like clinical stuff I've read that's just like about abuse and about trauma and stuff like that. Sure. 
So, yeah. I cannot believe I haven't read this book yet. I I really wish I had read this book at this point. I, I've owned it for a while, so I don't really have an excuse. You won't be able to put it down, that's for sure. Okay, it's, it's so just start gripping. it and get going, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting some some thumbs up from over in the from the from the girls the peanut gallery there, <laughs> Stadler and Waldorf. There we go. All right. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's not flattering at all. Um, <laughs> um, Wait, sorry. Can I guess what that reference was? That a Muppets reference? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I, yeah. I just knew reference. I didn't know their names, but as soon as you said, I, like, I know. Dude, that's got to be those two. Muppets. I feel like it's the, <laughs> that's so funny. How did we both get that? Because like, that has to be their names. That's the only thing they could be named. <laughs> Yeah, named after two major hotels in New York, <laughs> the Stadler really? and the Waldorf. Wait, did you read a book about the Muppets? Because I would totally read that. <laughs> we've read books about Nintendo, and we've read books about VeggieTales. I feel like Muppets is next. I have not read a book about the Muppets, but now you say that I do actually want to. And you always know, go out there, like the Jim Henson autobiography or something like that. I would read that. That sounds like a good time. Let's go. All right. My next book is Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. Um, this is obviously a classic for the intelligent design movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael B. He's a really cool guy. Uh, he was the one who first really drew attention to things like, so his, his major area of work was in studying bacterial flagellum, um, the ability for bacteria to move using their, their crazy spinning tail. Right. And he, was one of the intelligent design guys. Now he's not he's not young Earth. He's not in fact I think he he's very old Earth in his thinking, but as opposed to mildly old Earth? No, I mean for people within the intelligent design <laughs> camp, you know, they're yeah, like yeah, yeah. six thousand years versus ten thousand, he's like, never mind those. You know <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to start a new movement called like the kind of old earth where it's like it's like I don't think it's millions, I think it or billions. It's just like maybe like fifty thousand or something. <laughs> just to make everyone mad. Like literally no one's happy with you. Yeah, like not enough time to be biblically accurate in a face value reading of the Bible, but also not enough time for evolution to happen. Just really awkward amount of time that makes everyone angry and have a completely arbitrary reason for deciding that this is <laughs> no I'm committed to 57,000 years old let me tell you why um, so Darwin's Black Box is the book that <clears throat> first popularized the idea of irreducible complexity mm-hmm. as being a complaint for Darwinian sort of uh, speciation he is incredibly compelling. I would actually say that I was really impressed by this book. I think it holds up. It's it's not new by any means. Um, he makes some really good arguments. Sometimes he gets technical. And even he's very upfront about that. Like, sometimes I'm going to get kind of technical. I'm going to try to keep it, you know, accessible as much as possible. I'll try to use metaphors and stuff like that. Sometimes the metaphors just made it feel more abstract hmm. uh, as opposed to making it easier to understand. I'm like, okay, now we're talking in metaphors, but I still don't know what's going on. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, but overall I would say it was actually a kind of a recommend, I recommend like, and then he, because it was like a 10th anniversary edition or something like that, he had an extra chapter or a, an appendix or something where he, he talked about all of the responses and he responded to hmm. the different criticisms that have risen in the last decade to his position, uh, and does a, a really decent job of talking about those different objections. One of the critiques you've had of sort of lay level medical type books is kind of how, mm. you know, you've mentioned this before, how they're like, 
pop reference and just like and just like the pleasure chemicals in the brain kind of stuff. So it's kind of cool that you're like, hey, I got a book that I I could beat my but take like sink my teeth into, and that maybe went a little over my head. But like, cool, better that than than not, right? I think we can all think of books that were simultaneously accessible and went deep, and I think it's possible to do both well. Mm. Maybe not at like the highest level, but but yeah, I think. I appreciate it when people try to go deep and try to get technical and then still attempt to maintain accessibility. So that's that's an admirable at- approach to a book. Hmm. Um, my next book is Saved by Grace by Anthony A. Hukama. Um, assigned reading for my Systematic 3 class. It's on soteriology proper, which is the uh, basically the study of like salvation, like how do we get saved. Um, I really enjoyed reading this book because I had been sort of, I had shelved some of the Calvinist Arminian tensions in my own mind. I think it's healthy to have some of those tensions. It's probably, it's healthy to be, I think you should be settled one way or the other on certain free will conversations and probably still have a little bit of tension. I think that's probably a good idea. Um, but this book, I think, helped me solidify uh, my thoughts to to being Calvinist proper. Mm. Um this book was a really good walkthrough on the subject. And I, I think I think I, I think I re articulated to myself and maybe better what Calvinism at least Calvinism in the narrow sense of, of this the free will, God sovereignty conversation really is. And I think Calvinism man, and I don't wanna wait it's <laughs> it's dope, according to Jermichael. But properly, I think the Calvinist basically says, look, at the heart of of man's free will and God's sovereign choice is a tension and a mystery. Mm. And the Calvinist says, we recognize that, we don't attempt to solve it, and we just say, that mystery is something that's God's business. The scripture teaches man's moral culpability and and autonomy completely, and God's absolute sovereignty over it. At the heart of that is a tension, and if you believe that tension should just exist and that you want to hold both, that makes you a Calvinist. Yeah, I can get on board with that take. And I was like, okay, I, I'm there. Because I, oh, and I say that sympathetic to some of my, my Arminian friends who, who genuine, thorough, and I, I know who they are, most of you guys probably can guess, because they say, we believe we can have a philosophically consistent articulation of man's free will and God's sovereignty that doesn't have them at odds, that has them parallel in a way. And we believe that the Bible supports that. And I don't, and, and the, the people I'm thinking of, and many are, um, of them are way smarter than I am. And, and I understand why they're like the, 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 the philosophical tension that Calvinism has that they're just really uncomfortable with. They basically believe you can't have um, any meaningful free will and the kind of sovereignty Calvinists talk about. And so I, I, I'm sympathetic, but I, I think I would lean toward the Bible just being a good old-fashioned classic Calvinist on this. And uh, I'm, pr- I'm pretty happy with that, if that makes sense. So I was never not a Calvinist before, like convictionally or anything, but it was just something like, nah, I got to take the time to start diving a little bit. And this class, uh, this Saved by Grace, um, a couple other books, and some other just odds and ends just kind of had me land a little bit more solidly, being like, yep, I'm, I'm, I'll take that moniker for what it's worth in the theological conversations. My next book, Studies in Matthew. Uh, so just another book on the Gospels. Uh, this was good. Don't have, uh, you know, that many thoughts on it. So I'll just do two here. Uh, 
Introducing Protestant Social Ethics by Brian Matz. Never read this book. This book, <laughs> this book sucks. Uh, honestly, it was just like covering the history of social ethics, which could have been really cool. But he took multiple thousands of years of history, like just went back to like scripture all the way up till now, walking through social ethics. And it ended up being like pretty liberal. Like he talked a lot about like, those those liberals. <gasps> it it just kind of sucked because it was like it was both not written super well, trying to cover way too much material, and then the times he did stop to make a point, it kind of felt like, like bro, are you like into like universal basic income? Like I don't know. It's just, not that that was like a major <laughs> problem or something. It just it felt like the points he was trying to highlight were like slipping in something and like an agenda he had. I'm like, just write the book on that then. And tell us that this is why you're writing it. Because I'm down to read yeah. it yeah, yeah, if yeah. that's what you're going to talk about. But I hate the like sort of slipping it in there like, yeah, this is this is actually like the biggest biblical theme when it's not really. Um, huh. So I was just kind of like bummed because it was also one of my seminary readings. I don't like wasting time reading something like this. And we gave the professor like some feedback and I don't think it'll ever be like on the syllabus again. But yeah, it's just... Unfortunate. I'll be honest, the premise sounds so interesting. Like, go if you want to go yeah. through like two thousand years of like social ethics, I immediately am down to read that book. But you've you've kind of walked me away from it a little bit. There's there's just basic Marxist, and I, I don't I'm I'm not I'm saying that as someone who I think has a reasonable understanding of what Marx was all about. Just basic Marxist presuppositions just slotted in there. They're just you're just like oh that's that is what's underneath that. Ugh, this is why. Yeah. Also. I walked into it with like being pumped, oh, like because yeah, yeah. I was like, "Oh, this sounds sick!" It's recommended by a prof I really like and appreciate, and was liking his other readings. So, I, I think that confirms that it was a bad book to me because you know sometimes you walk in with a bad attitude, <laughs> and then you're like, "Okay, was it was it me or was it the book that was bad?" There, I walked in with a good attitude and came out like I almost didn't want to finish the book. Also, what's what's confusing. And this prof, this prof is awesome. Which it, him recommending the book was like, have you, yeah, when was the last time you read this, man? Have like, read, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, because you are not what I'm concerned. What I'm concerned about this book is very much what you're not. So like, and I think the prof's awesome. So I think he listened to a few of us kind of being like, hey, this was a waste of our time, and he'll probably not include in the syllabus again because he's he's a really solid guy. I really appreciate him. Okay, my next book was Bad Blood, which we already talked about. So I guess I'll just use this time as an opportunity to say that Owen's hair looks really, really nice today. I, I really like the curls. He looks sponsor, very handsome. Sponsor moment for Owen's hair product? I don't... Is it? We we have been trying to get sponsors in. Chloe's giving a thumbs up. She she agrees. Um, Judaism! <laughs> <laughs> Today's podcast has been brought to you by Judaism. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna pass the mic on to someone else. I'm I'm done. I put nothing in my hair. My hair is naturally beautiful and curly. <laughs> hot take. I think Owen has the best hair here. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I don't it's know. It's not a hot take. That's it's, like it's a very rational. Yeah, I, I don't know if there. Was I don't ever. know. I've been sitting here looking at John Michaels. It, it's it's it it's is. fantastic. It All right. Also, as no one is surprised by, the best dressed person on the podcast. I okay. I came today thinking we were gonna have cameras on. 
and this was something that had been talked about. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I guess I always have a, a jacket on of some kind, but like I, I got up this morning, I was like, oh, kind of cameras on. I'm, I want to say for the record, I'm glad we don't. Mm. I'm enjoying this. I can sit here and scratch my belly and, you know, <laughs> pick my teeth and do all these other things while I'm not got the mic and nobody cares. Everybody nobody cares. Everybody is now just trying to imagine what things couldn't be on video. That yeah. <laughs> so Jesse's been shirtless Scratching the entire- Scratching your belly? <laughs> that was <laughs> That was what you were worried about. <laughs> so Cleaning crazy. my socks over here. Just okay, see, that's, <laughs> anyways, did, did you read? I'm gonna another, read. Did you read another book? book? I read yeah, another book. You did, you did. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Owen, Owen, can you tell us about the book you read? Uh, Anne of Green Gables. Woo! <laughs> I had not read a, a Lucy Maud Montgomery book in a very long time, and I will be honest with you, it had gotten so far that I didn't even really have thoughts about those books anymore. I forgotten how funny. She is as a writer. Just actually, funny might be the wrong word because it sounds she's charming. charming. That's the That's right what word. I wrote down too. Okay, like she is very, very charming. One of the things I love too, and it's a very, very short book. Uh, I it's the only one I read by her. I read it and went, oh man, I should read the other ones, but then I didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I read it and I was like, you know, you start out the book and you're like, oh, there's there's Anne and she's up against the world and there's all these like cranky people. Like everyone who she meets is like hating on her and you're like, this poor little girl. Um, but then like by the end of the book. The, the writer is so charming and so gentle and she has talked you into liking all of the grumpy characters. Oh, you know, so by great. the end of the book, you're like, oh, Mrs. Lind, you know, oh. Mrs. Lind. And, and, and at the beginning of it, you're like, oh man, this is why they made, you know, witch trials, you know? But, <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of it, you're like, I would spend time with her. She seems like a, she's a character, but she's a good one, you know? She, and, and the author, in a very short book, talked you all the way around from hating a character to like very sincerely being like, oh, I love these characters. I love this world, you know? Um, I think it's because, Anne, well, not always, sometimes Anne viscerally hates someone but generally Anne really sees the best in people and has this very like like imaginative view of the world where she can imagine someone's good side and then because of that they're the best in them is brought out and I know that this is fiction it's not the real world but I felt very encouraged to like love people better and and try to see the good in them so that they could actually the good in them could actually make its way out mm-hmm. I so charming. I read this. Me and Chloe listened to this on audiobook together, actually, which was a really fun experience. Um, charming is definitely the right word for it. Great book. How many of you guys have read the whole, all seven of them, like all the way out? I think I've read at least five, but it was like when I was quite young. Like I feel like I only really remember the first two. I maybe read all of them, but I, I only I could only actually tell you any stories from the first two. It just keeps expanding, right? Like it's like Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, Anne of Canada, Anne of the Worlds, Anne of Milky Anne of Way. The universe. <laughs> Milky Way of the universe, yeah. Anne of all cosmos. <laughs> Anne, Anne, the Anne and the Omega. No. Um, <laughs> that, that is <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> He's made a heresy. <laughs> That would be such a great spinoff. I did not expect bringing up Anne of Green Gables to go where it went. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob, what's your next book? (laughs) Oh, guys, I love this podcast so much. Uh, The Church, an introduction. 
uh, by Greg R. Allison. Look at us lame sauces over there. <laughs> yeah, no. So I read another <laughs> theology book today. Uh, yeah, I have nothing to say about this. I love Greg uh, Allison's writing. He's very, very simple, very clear, very straightforward. Um, I also love him as a person, too. So I recommend this book. Next book for me, uh, Caring for the Souls of Children. Uh, so it's edited by Amy Baker, uh, but has contributions from just a ton of different biblical counselors. And it's geared towards like training biblical counselors or parents uh, to do counseling in tough situations with their kids or with you know the children they're counseling. So it, it's very topical. It just goes through, picks a... You know, one one was on pornography, another one was on, like, kind of the, the lonely child, another one was on abuse, uh, the the child, just, like, ranging from, from something like abuse to just the child who uh, is a disobedient one. What does it look like to be counseling and parenting in those situations? And, like, almost every chapter was very practical, super solid. This is a recommend, actually, for, like, parents or any of you guys. I'm writing this down. I'm going to read this. This sounds good. Yeah, it, it was worth it. It was, like... Not rocket science, not breaking any new categories for me, but a really helpful starting point, actually, for all of, for a lot of common issues. So, yeah, big, big recommend for me. Also, Amy Baker. I'm trying to remember what else I read from her. She's good. I like, I like what she's done. Uh, but that's, and then next one, which we already talked about, is Steve Jobs. Uh, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Okay, my next book was The Open Secret by Leslie Newbegin, I think it was. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, the subtitle would be a theology of missions. Um, okay. So I'll be honest. I don't know if it was me or the book, but I don't remember anything about this. Like I know I finished it, but I, I can't tell you anything about it. Um, and so clearly it didn't stick with me that well, but that, that might be an indictment on me more than the book. So yeah. <laughs> I'll just move on. Cool. I feel like I have that with books sometimes. I know it's kind of embarrassing. But that, I don't have that with almost any, actually any of the other ones except for this one. This one's the only one where it's like, did I really read that? Considering we're navigating between the four of us nearly 400 bucks, or nearly 200 bucks, it's like, I think I'm kind of surprised even at my own, like, retention of most of these. So that's kind of cool. I definitely have books that are, like, throw away in terms of retention. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I'm pleasantly surprised at how few there are because I tried to take my notes without looking back at my notes from books. Um, and... When I went back and looked at my notes, I was like, oh, I remember this quite well. So at least six months after I read something, it seems to be still mostly kicking around in there. But this book I didn't take notes on and apparently didn't make any mental notes either. So, Okay. Uh, my next book is Zoltanitsyn, A Soul in Exile. So this is a biography by Joseph Pierce of Alexander Zoltanitsyn. Um, and I, I liked this quite a bit. It was good to sort of get an overview of Zoltanitsyn. As someone who has actually not read um, any of his major works, but just to, but he's such an influential person for those of you who don't know, uh, he grew up behind the Iron Curtain under Soviet Russia and uh, ended up writing some incredibly influential works that exposed a lot of what was wrong with uh, communist Russia and with communism itself, but also with what was actually happening specifically uh, in Soviet Russia. This biography is specifically tracking sort of his intellectual and thought development, because as a young man, he was fully on board. He was fully uh, like 
a passionate Marxist uh, and Leninist, and and he was all about it. And eventually, he ended up, you know, he had some modest criticisms, and they got them him sent to the Gulag, um, and because they found like a letter he'd written to a friend of his where they were kind of throwing around different ideas for how they could improve communism. And he got sent to a gulag. Yeah, modest criticisms is like putting it mildly. It's like you could be like vaguely uneasy about something. And yeah, it's like, okay. it's not like he's like, let's burn this down. Yeah, you know? it's like no, off he, to the gulag for you. No, he was like, I love communist Russia. Let's let's make it better, right? And they're like, no, gulag, right? <laughs> uh, and so this this author is tracking his his spiritual and intellectual development from that character into the Alexander Zolzhenitsyn who we would know about today. One of the consequences of that sort of focus of the book was that sometimes the book felt kind of sterile. Um, so he was talking about like the things he's thinking about and the, the way he's thinking about them. And you're like, okay, it feels like an armchair conversation going on in Zolzhenitsyn's head. Meanwhile, I know he's in the gulags right now, right? So as a biography, you're like, okay, I feel like a little removed from the incredibly difficult life he's leading. And I'm spending the entire time in his thought life instead. So that kind of gave it a weird sterile kind of feel. Um, But I, I would recommend it because that is a really cool focus to actually have. What's it called again? Uh, Zoltanitsyn, A Soul in Exile. Cool. Um, my next book is Parenting by Paul David Tripp. This is going to kick off a bunch of parenting. I mean, Michael already mentioned this, but this is going to launch a lot of parenting books for us. Um, this one was very good. Uh, Paul David Tripp wrote it because he'd written other parenting books, but he would have parents come to him and kind of be like, I did the things you said. And I don't know if it worked. And he was like, that's not the spirit I think is right. And so he was like, I think I needed to take a step back and do some of these broader principles, like the almost like a first principles attack of parenting. Not what do you do, but why are you doing? Who are you becoming? That kind of thing. Um, excellent book. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, highly recommend I'll talk about this book. Well, I'll just talk about it now then, actually. Um, I read the other one that he wrote first, um, uh, Age of Opportunity by Paul David Tripp. I loved it. And so I, th- I haven't read that one yet, uh, but I plan on it. I just I thought it was really good. And I mean, any any good book can be twisted and like used poorly. But I'm kind of bummed that he felt like he had to write a different book to like qualify it. I have to read it so I like before before knowing. But Age of Opportunity is just a really good book. Um, it's one of the few Paul David Tripp books that I was like, I actually didn't even want you to cut out 20%. I wanted you to keep it all. Normally I'm like, I love 80%. And then there's 20% that I'm just like little too. You gave three more examples than I needed. Yeah, Crossway was probably like, hey. And he was like, all right, sure, let's go. Um, the, uh, the, uh, Flirty Crossway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did a, so one of the things Joe Michael and I did is we made a, a spreadsheet with all the books we've read uh, in and around the documentary and business and uh, pornography and parenting and sexuality, all these different things, trying to, trying to get a lay of the information we've consumed over the last two years. And, I just did a quick search. Actually, Jim, we've read seven books by Paul David Tripp. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of hilarious. 
Next up for for me is for the mouth of the Lord has spoken a doctrine of scripture uh, by Guy Prentice Waters. Uh, this was just on the yeah I took a systematic theology class which spent a lot of time on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of scripture. Uh, this was just super solid uh, going through that theology. So I won't go on too much more about it because it's pretty boring, but also awesome. Uh, yeah, I won't, I don't have too much to say about this next one either. Sherlock Holmes, the sign of the four. It was good. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we feel like, uh, like busting a little bit, that's not a problem at all. My next book is the life we're looking for by Andy Crouch. Ooh. Um, and so this is, I, I read Andy Crouch and I liked it. I went for another one. And this one, is a little bit different in terms of its focus, but I would actually say I liked better even than culture making. Um, it's it's a little bit different. It's he's talking about um, you know what it what it looks like for us to have pursue the good life, what the good life would mean from a Christian perspective, and how to continue that pursuit of like really full living uh, in the twenty first century mm. um, without becoming like a luddite or something like that, but actually like get in there the things we're looking for like attention love he's talking about how to like how we should be weaving in meaningful hospitality and stuff like this so it was a really really interesting book i just felt like it's extremely accessible it's also quite short um so i I thought it was super accessible and really charming and uh quite compelling Hmm. nice next on my list is the madness of crowds by douglas murray uh any either you guys uh Jesse and Owen, neither of you guys read it? <clears throat> so, um, I'm not sure if I have or not. Hmm. When was it written? 2018. Oh, okay, no. No? Okay. Douglas Murray, um, a gay atheist from the UK, wrote a book called The Madness of Crowds, and it's basically his cultural analysis of kind of the cultural insanity that we're in. It's, it's essentially four main parts. It is, uh, the four main parts are gay... Uh, gay, women, black, trans. So it basically just takes, you know, four of the biggest categories of issues and takes a stab at his kind of analysis of them. Um, it was recommended, it was one of the reading books that I could write a book report on for my ethics class in a Christian seminary because uh, Douglas Murray is incredibly, incredibly erudite. Like he's so thoughtful, clear, just his analysis is incredible actually. And he comes at it from a, like, it's like every Christian who reads the book is going to be like more or less like, yep, that's about right. Um, with some caveats, obviously. And so he just has a very interesting perspective. Obviously he's not coming, he's coming from a very sympathetic place, but from a ethically place that we would not agree with, but he's very sympathetic to the Christian uh, perspective. It's just a very, it's a good book. Um, and, it was very interesting having someone kind of from an outside an outside and inside, like he's part of the LGBTQ plus movement, but he's very critical of it in the sense of he's like, I don't think that's a relevant category that makes sense for me. There's no compelling reason why the transgender movement as a whole politically would have anything to do with the gay rights movement. It's a very historical book. It's just, yeah, I mean, I think you need to have a reasonable filter, like you have your worldview kind of categorized nicely. Uh, for reading it healthily, but I gained a lot from it. So, uh, Michael, you might have a few thoughts. Yeah, Jess and I listened to this book together as well and just really enjoyed it. Uh, 
weirdly, like the fact that he's, it's just a different perspective than I've read. And maybe that's why I enjoyed it. Um, but I, I also just appreciate his frankness and like specifically walking through why the T doesn't fit in LGB. Uh, Carl Truman does this in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I'm going to get to that because uh, I read that this year. Um, but I was struck that that was a theme that he picked up on a lot. And I just thought the title, like The Madness of Crowds, that might be my, one of my favorite titles of everything I've read this year. So it's, it's interesting because as soon as you said, has anyone read The Madness of Crowds? I was like, I think I have, but it was a book from the 1830s called Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Yeah. Mm. It's a... Very, completely different book. There are actually a few books called The Madness of Crowds. Yeah. It's like a saying. <coughs> I, yeah. Like I've heard that as a saying. Not like just, a popular phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like co-opting it for the title, which is great. Um, you guys well, just well met at the mic there. and it was, it was nice. Lady in the Tramp moment. <laughs> Shotgun the Tramp. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why I had to do that. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, it, oh, Jermichael's up next. Sorry. Yep. Uh, More Than a Battle, How to Experience Victory, Freedom, and Healing from Lust by Joe Rigney. This is one that was recommended to me by several people out in Louisville that I had not heard of. Joe Rigney is someone who, uh, I don't know if he currently is, but he used to work with Desiring God. Um, and I felt like he he's kind of like a, trying to strike a middle ground between someone like Unwanted with Jay Stringer, that, that book, and like a Heath Lambert Finally Free. Overall, I thought it was really good. You mean like approaching it as a spiritual issue versus like a trauma and childhood wounds based thing? If I'm remembering what those books are about correctly? Yes. And then there'd be like more caveats I would, I would add, but like... Yeah, that's a definitely an oversimplification of it. I'm just... But yeah, that, I that, think that, I remember those two titles yep. from the last podcast. Um, it There were a few things in it though that I was like, no, that just, that fell really flat you leaned way too heavily on that analogy. Uh, one of the biggest problems was he had like this big divide between like, I felt like he was actually splitting the upper and lower, lower story problem that Nancy Piercy talks about in Love Thy Body, that you have like the the real you mentally and then the physical you. Uh, and that yes. it's like, you just have to get back to that rider sitting on top of the, the elephant and the elephant is your like unruly body that you have to bring into subjection and it just, it didn't work for me from, for those sections. And then he had like lots of other helpful things, but in which case I'd just say, go read, you know, pure in heart or finally free. Like those will, those will kind of hit those a bit better in my yeah. opinion. It's funny. Cause I really theologically am against this sort of two story way of thinking, but I guess it has been sometimes helpful pragmatically for me to think about them as slightly different where it's like in in terms of like sexual sin battles but just because something's pragmatically helpful doesn't mean you should adopt it either you don't just mm. blindly do something just because it's been helpful anyway that's probably a discussion for another time but that's that's an interesting one i gotta yeah, think about that just like one other like addition to this is i think jeremy pierre with his dynamic heart model so he has a book called the dynamic heart in daily life and if you guys ever get, you probably won't, but if you get the chance to take a course with him, he's awesome. Like teaching intro to biblical counseling, his book, uh, dynamic heart and daily life teaches like this heart model where it's got kind of three main aspects to the heart, which is cognitive, effective, and volitional. To me, that is a far more helpful 
paradigm and more scriptural way to understand like the heart and the wrestling that happens in a situation and like where the breakdown happens than like a two tier like body mind dichotomy that seem to fight against each other. Yeah, I don't like them being pitted against each other. I guess I just meant that there are like Jay can edit this out if this is getting too in the weeds on this, but when experiencing like sexual temptation, I think often we can feel a difference between like a heart thing versus like a body thing where you're literally feeling hungry. Yep. And when you're really deep in it, it all just feels the same. But then later on you start kind of differentiating them. I, I hope that doesn't that way of thinking about it doesn't fall into like a, a dualism or a or a whatever you call it. Mm. I, I think it's more just thinking about it as like sometimes somatic sometimes there's yeah. Sometimes there's heart issues and then sometimes there's just literal regular desires that humans experience because we, we mm. live inside a body. Right. I think one of the issues, the, the main issue that would come from this is if you're like, yeah, the body is not really the me, though. Agreed, agreed. So if, if you're just like, I think the idea of experiencing tensions in your desires is, is totally cool. It's just, and, and you're not, I know you're not saying that, but the the kind of the more Gnostic idea of, yeah. well, the real use the, is the, the, the elevated you and, and to heck with that stupid flesh thing that wants all these stuff. You yeah, know? no, in, in fact... The way I've thought about it, I think, has actually given me more grace mm. for it, where it's like mm. I don't experience a sexual desire and feel disgusted at my gross body, you know, like, yeah. as opposed to being like, yeah, it's, it's God made me good. I mean, we experienced the fall, but like, this is a good God-given gift that my body is, so. Is it not your turn? It is your turn now. Oh, sorry, you reached for the mic, so I thought you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just going to say you have a, a wonderful body. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel to Nancy Pierce's book, Love Jesse's Body. Um, <laughs> just hearing you say such mean things about your body, I'm like, no, Jesse. No, I, that was me saying like what an unhealthy version of me would say, not the current me. Um, yeah, for real. Okay, anyway, my next book was, in my opinion, a huge banger. I already talked to the group chat about it, but <coughs> this is what it sounds like by Ogie Ogas and Susan Rogers. Susan Rogers has had a fairly fascinating life. She was the producer for Prince as well as many other huge musical artists, had a very successful career as a music producer and an engineer. Um, and just had a very deep and intimate knowledge of music in, in something like her late fifties or sixties or something. She kind of was like, I think I'm kind of going to take a step back from this and I want to get an education. And so she got like a PhD in neuroscience or something like that. I could be getting some of these details wrong, but after that, so she's in her late sixties now, she was basically like, I have all this education through a career in music and in the brain. And I want to talk about why how we can sort of think about music taste. So again, this is not for everybody. Some people are going to be like, I don't want to listen to an entire book talking about music taste. For me, I ate this up. I loved it. I really think Jermike would like it, and I think there's a pretty good chance you guys would like it. It's called This Is What It Sounds Like. Throughout the book, as she's referencing songs, 
she wants you to like play them and, and listen to them and, and exp- understand what she's talking about. So I had a Spotify playlist that somebody had already made for the book, just ready, locked and loaded. And I was jumping back and forth between Audible and Spotify while I listened. Not that I necessarily liked much of the music she was referencing necessarily. It was just that it was like, whoa, this is so... I- as a music producer, I was obsessed. I found this so good. So she bra- basically breaks down music into um, these categories. So there's there's kind of the classic ones like lyrics, melody, rhythm, and timbre. So she has a, ch- a chapter in each of those. Timbre is like what it sounds like, um, like the texture of the sound maybe, or the production you could even say. But then she also had a few other paradigms where she said, or, or sorry, um, aspects of it. One was authenticity. So she mm-hmm. says... So all of these, none of them are supposed to be like one's good, one's bad. It's just like some people plot differently if you put it on a graph. So authenticity would be like, she showed this example, this band called the Shags, where it was like, they are terrible. They, it was like these three daughters who, I'm going to try to move quickly through this one, sorry, but these three daughters who their dad received like what he thought was a prophetic vision that they were going to be like famous. And so he took them out of school and started homeschooling them and did nothing but have them rehearse for like 15 hours a day until they finally were ready to record an album. They go in the music studio, press record, and the sound engineers shut the door between the main studio because they are rolling on the floor laughing. They sound so bad. Go listen to the shags. It's like some of the worst no rhythm, no tonal center. It it feels it feel the way the only way I know how to describe it, and this is gonna sound like your description of Chesterton, is it sounds like music by people who have never listened to music before, where they just sort of like got instruments and tried something. Here's what's interesting. The record producers, their father died and they all resented and hated music at this point and just went on and got got married and got regular lives, these these three daughters. But somehow the record that was in there, like one of the copies sort of got filed away somewhere in this record studio and when somebody purchased the studio like decades later they found this and were like this is so strange i love it i'm going to re-release it and it became a hugely influential record to people like kurt cobain from nirvana other people who make albeit way more commercially successful and and music that people like but music that does have kind of a childlike quality to it like nirvana is extremely raw extremely like intuitive and they were like, this album totally changed my life. It's one of my favorite bands. So that is an example of extreme, what she called naivety, naivety, whatever, um, extremely naive music. And then there's extremely sophisticated music. And a foreign extreme of that might be Bach, where his music is hyper organized, these beautiful fugues that like follow themes and are the very complicated. So she says both are great. But some people have a strong leaning towards like this is the type of music I like. Interesting. Yeah. So interesting. Another another one is I'll try to move quickly through these. Is, is it on Audible, real quick? Yes. Okay. I I think it would have been an equally good experience on Audible or in a book because you can either jump back and forth between Audible and I listen to it on an audiobook, but I would have enjoyed it just as much in in an in person copy. Um, another one is realism. So like, how much does it sound like its instruments that we're familiar with in the real world? So like kind of you know the Beatles versus Daft Punk let's say um and then one would be novelty and so she says some music follows a very particular form so let's say like blues that has been around for a long time it follows a tradition and then music like maybe some of Kanye West music that really pushes boundaries and so her theory is that there's a novelty popularity curve where the far ends the extremes are generally the least popular thing and what is in the middle where it has some novelty but some familiarity is what is popular. So let's say Billie Eilish. 
has some new elements introduced. There's some very novel things about it, but it is still pop music. So that's why it's very popular. Stuff that really pushes the boundaries and is like far left is often not popular. And then often, again, not a t- oh, there are some people who are very devoted to blues or classical or jazz or something that has a particular form that if you deviate from it, people will be like, you're not really doing real blues or whatever. Um, some people really gravitate towards that. Um, and so where you, you can kind of plot yourself generally of like, I tend to gravitate towards this. So I remember I was in a cafe the other day and there's this barista I talked to a lot who has a very left field taste in music. And somehow John Mayer came up and he was like, John Mayer's the worst. And I was like, look, by your debt standards of what makes music good, I understand why you'd say he's the worst. He makes very safe music. It's like, he's not really contributing anything wildly new. He's just doing it super, super well. So he would never say that John Mayer is a bad songwriter. He wouldn't say that John Mayer is a bad guitarist. He wouldn't say that he has a bad voice. Like everything about it is objectively good, but he actually feels revulsion when he hears music that's too safe. So he was like, Harry Styles is like the worst artist of all time because he churns out like the safest possible version of every genre. It's like just this factory. So I don't, I don't feel that way. I, I tend to be a little bit less field than him, but I get it. Like by his, for what is interesting to him about music, John Mayer would be actually offensive to the ears. So anyway, and I, I've definitely heard music that is offensive to the ears to me because it's too safe, where I actually feel kind of a revulsion from it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like the bro country thing where you're just yeah, like... Yeah, maybe, maybe that might not be the example that comes to mind for me. I uh, think... Does, so, I guess it no, comes that, to no, me because, I, because I, maybe that's an easy one for me because I actually don't like country no, in that, general. No, that's so fair. I think where I've felt it is there's been a few songs that we've... Um, uh, where I've heard at like weddings where it's like the song that they asked the band to sing or something. And it is just, anyway, I won't even go into it, but just there's songs like that out there that are just so safe that it kills me. So anyway, I, I'll, I'll stop talking about this book now, but I loved it. If you like music and thinking about music past just enjoying listening to it, if you have any interest in getting into music production, it's not about production, but it will really be helpful. I think all of you would like it, especially, especially Jermichael, I think would. All right, my next book is Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley. Um, I don't think there's anything really original for me to say about this book. I think everyone's read it, presumably. I love Frankenstein. He's a really cool monster. Oh, do you? Do you like that monster? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I I read something somewhere, and I, I've always liked it, is that knowledge is knowing that uh, Frankenstein is the scientist, Wisdom is knowing that he actually was the monster. Oh, snap. I <laughs> <laughs> had a bubbly pop in <laughs> Right? It's pretty think, good, right? I, I, I think I thought the, the, the snippy quote, that that's so much better than what I was thinking. I thought wisdom is knowing not to bring it up in a conversation because you oh. sound like a dork. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay, my, my read on this, though, and I've re- read this before, is that I feel like it's slightly overrated. Yeah. I, I felt I I'm very mad on that novel. Right. I'm just like meh. meh. Yeah. Okay. So maybe you would agree. It's maybe a little get to a little too much hype. I can't. Yeah. And maybe this is a this is just Jacob and the way he processes stuff. I find Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein, completely irrational in every way whatsoever. I don't understand his methodology. Why he did almost anything. The monster. Um, I think. I can empathize with as a human, or I could, not, ironically, not. I get his motivations. Frankenstein just makes a couple of dumb choices that are so pivotal to weigh the plot that just I'm just lost. 
Maybe right. that's a dumb critique, but I just felt it was like... Right. I think there's so much going on that's more philosophical than it is from like a strictly like, storytelling, yeah. like but logistical I, perspective. But, but your I, plot hangs on that. And that but that's the kind of thing that... Has to carry it, right? Yeah. And to be fair, she wrote it when she was a teenager, right? So I feel like that's pretty good. I, it's better than anything I was writing when I was a teenager, yeah, right? <laughs> totally. Titan. The Life of John D. Rockefeller by Ron Chernow. Oh, I've heard great things about this book. Excellent. Um, it is, it's so good. It's just fascinating. I mean, you know, he was, I think, candidate for, like, the richest dude ever for the time that he was um, making money. It's just an interesting, it's a story of an American success story. It's a story of, of the oil industry and commerce and... It navigates a lot of the same tensions of, like he was. So one of the things is he was a just Baptist through and through, Christian through and through. But the 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 biographer does kind of go like, yeah, but he was also a ruthless, ruthless businessman. And and so I, I think he fairly. I, I would say sometimes where he'd be like, grow up with a Christian. I'd be like, no, that's just being a, a businessman. Like, calm down. Like, you can do that. I, I was maybe more. He was like, isn't it so bad that the businessman did this? And I'm like, no, that seems like. Just kind of clean capitalism. I'm, I'm fine with a little bit of cutthroatness. If you can't survive, you can't survive. That's more my take. Overall, it was just a very thoughtful biography. Really wrestled with Rockefeller's personality, what it's like to make absolute gobsmack amount of money, and then try and find out how to... So a lot of the book is actually a lot of a walkthrough of, of best principles of philanthropy in a lot of ways. Uh, Rockefeller was an extremely interesting guy. Um, the only downside to this biography is it is 832 pages. Mm. Thick old book. It's like thirty something hours, I think, twenty something hours on on Audible, um, and so it's a hard recommend for that reason. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs' biography is probably almost as long, but like, read it. Oh, that's this just what to just, ask. Like, do you see any parallels between the personality of Rockefeller and Steve Jobs? Yeah, some. I think Rockefeller was just was a little bit more of a normal dude. I think he was a hard-working guy, very spendthrifty, very much save-save, and just, I think he probably got just the right amount of lucky in the right amount of times, but also seized that luck, went forward, was a very smart businessman, very smart organizer and understanding of human nature. I don't think he had quite the same reality distortion field that Jobs did. It's just, he was a meaningfully different guy. I also think what's interesting about Steve Jobs is less how much money he made and more about what he did which i guess is probably true of anybody because like a number if you just made eight zillion dollars and didn't do anything that's pretty boring so probably there aren't really yeah any multi-gazillionaires who didn't do anything that are were interested in reading about yeah well i mean the thing with with johnny rockefeller is he he didn't innovate much at all he just looked at the oil industry and said i'm gonna start doing this better and then he systematized things and he saw opportunities and he took them he made calculated bets on risk and it's just very much like a slow and steady made of boatload of money. And, and when I say boatload, I mean a metric boatload. That guy had, that guy, I mean, he's Rockefeller, right? So it was a good book. Did you guys know that, uh, slight tangent, but that Walter Isaacson is like just finished a biography of Elon Musk? No. What? That's coming Shut out up. in like two months. Why doesn't he, Kate, the one that is already out is pretty good, yeah. and I kind of just want to wait till he dies to write the part two. I was just looking up the biography because I was comparing, like, the lengths of, like, Elon Musk's 
uh, and we'll bash the vents, the yeah, yeah. Uh, to to like how long you were saying, just because I was curious. And then I saw when I was looking it up that there's one that you can pre-order right now that's coming out in two months with uh, Walter Isaacson. I'm, I'm like so excited for that. I'm gonna read it. I really wish I hadn't just yeah, last year read, which I thought that one was quite good, so I didn't have any complaints about it. I, I the only reason I would even consider reading this is just because I'm a fan of Walter Isaacson, not because I'm a fan of Elon Musk. I I could wait again until he passes away to read another biography on him. But I was like going to start. Like I just finished an audiobook and I was like probably going to start the one by Ashley Vance. I think I'm gonna wait now. I feel bad. Oh, I, I think you should. Poor Ashley. Yeah, poor Ashley Vance. Dang. She wrote, she wrote a great. She wrote a great biography. Wasn't it a he? I can't remember. I've known since she was a girl. Okay. By the name Ashley. Well, uh, yeah, but I I remember being surprised that I just yeah they weren't really a player in the story so. <laughs> Surprised that a woman wrote a biography of you. No, I mean, no, 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 no. I mean the opposite. I was surprised when I found out that Ashley was a man. I was like, oh, I thought it was a girl because of the name. A woman. Wait, oh, so sorry. Am I wrong? Ashley is 100% a dude? I, I think so, but now I'm second guessing the memory. I read this a bit a year ago. What? Why don't we just move on and I'll Google this real quick? I think you are right. Who, a man? who is. Oh, it's it's absolutely a man. Oh, it's oh, yeah, I just okay. googled it. Absolutely, man. Gotcha. That's fair well, that you didn't know that do. though, because it was a yeah. pretty minimal player in the story. It wasn't like John Carreyrou in Bad Blood, where he's oh, like yeah. a character in the story. It was just an author writing it's a book. An so. author writing a book. Yeah. Fair um, enough. I just feel bad for for him. I guess I'm sorry, misgendered. Um, I feel bad for him in the sense of it would it would just kind of be like you wrote you did a very you done good a, you done did a good biography and then now um, Isaacson is just going to come and crack home run. So, anyways. Next book for me, Ethics is Worship by Mark Leiderbach and Evan Linnell. Uh Nice long book um, on ethics. And the big thesis is not just doing ethics like, you know, as a discipline, but trying to approach ethics from a place of worship, like that God has created uh, order in this world, like a moral order. And uh, living in accordance to that is actually an act of worship. Uh Jake had a different take on this than me. I really enjoyed it. It started more like a systematic theology, actually, but with ethics in mind. And like some of it was a little bit, you know, elementary, but I just thought it was a really good building from ground zero, approaching ethics. And then the second half of the book is going through specific kind of ethical uh, issues that we're facing right now. Um, you know, divorce, uh, War, contraceptives. Uh, I'm trying to think of other examples, but there's just went through a bunch of examples. And again, it's not they weren't like like taking some uh, new hot take or something like that. It was just generally really good reference material. So not necessarily something that's like intended to be read straight through, though you totally can. Uh, I've actually used it as reference material already. Like when I'd be like, oh. I just kind of want to get like a good starting point on this issue. Uh, even maybe just for footnotes, like going to what other good books there are. It's kind of going to be my back pocket as like an ethics book that I want to use. So if you're interested in reading like more about ethics, ethics is worship is good. Uh, skip me. I'll do two next time. All right. My next book is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Um, 
and again, I assume we've all read this. Yep. Uh, this is a book actually they I was reading for a, a class I was doing, and uh, a reread for me. And uh, I think John Michael last time you you had Brave New World on yours. I think the first time we did a book podcast, and one of your your points is that it's like this is a it's a pretty graphically sexual book. Um, I would have the same. I'd have the same thing to say about it for sure. Uh, read with discernment, I guess, or maybe just don't. But I will say that I do think that there are some of the themes that I'll just actually point to are true to some of the things that are going on in our culture today, where we allow ourselves to be sort of uh, made passive by entertainment and all. That. There's large cultural themes that are true. It is interesting, of course. I think I'll just actually is not necessarily criticizing those developments. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. This is the weird thing. It's like, you're, ah, oh, man, you're right. This is a problem. He's like, oh, I wasn't saying it was a problem. Right? Like, yeah. he's a, he's a, I think Aldous Huxley was a real character. And, yeah. Um, introducing Protestant social ethics. We kind of talked about that. I, I largely agree with Joe Michael. I just, I found it a little bloated. And I was just kind of like, do, do, do. I don't really need your nine and a half pages on racism. Like, yes, we should not judge people on that. I just, I just found it was a lot of. Okay, yep, moving on. Um, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, uh, another parenting book. It's a classic. It was very good. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like getting into like necessary each book of some of these with what I got. It was just adding to the list of healthy thoughts on parenting kind of anything that's like double, tripling, quadrupling up, it's like, okay, well, that's a unified agreement across multiple authors, across multiple generations, that this is a truism of parenting. Cement that in, you know what I mean? Um, the only thing for this book that was interesting that I don't want to have any strong opinions on as, as not a parent yet, but he was very much team don't, uh, don't give your kids warnings or don't let them do something and say, hey, that, no, hey, I'm warning you, that was just a warning or something. If you say something to your ch child and they do it, you punish them right away. There is no second chances. In the sense of, he said, you with doing that, you train children to always realize there's always, they can do something wrong once. If expl it's explicit, it's in the context of a very clear, explicit, hey, don't do that. You train kids to be like, okay, well, I get one shot at doing something wrong and then I get punished afterwards. And I was like, that's fascinating. I want to think about that more. There are several other parenting books that kind of double down on that, actually. And, uh, like, I love the phrase, slow obedience is no obedience, as long as there's been, like, actual teaching beforehand. Um, next book for me, None Greater by Matthew Barrett. Uh, the title kind of comes from the idea from Anselm of the fact that God is a being uh, that none greater can be conceived of, which is really cool. And I like, I enjoyed the idea of that. And he, really what he's doing is taking Anselm and just unpacking him for lay people like myself uh, and going through the attributes of God. So it was good. Reading these books has like confirmed to me that I don't, I'm not passionate about theology, especially not systematic theology, even when it's beautiful, like reflecting on the attributes of God. Um, it's not what like makes my heart sing or like, I'm just thrilled to go read it. I totally can got a lot out of it and I'm thankful for it. Even just like some of the elements from Anselm cause we're, I'm taking a church history class right now as well. And 
so kind of interacting with him a bit too was cool. But it's just there. I'm thankful that there are people in the church who love these things, who want to write and study it. That's just not quite where I'm passionate about. This is where like counseling sexuality, I like could read endlessly in that space, and I feel deeply passionate about it. So it's kind of a fun like self discovery as well. Like because I didn't really know where my not even a limit, but just where, where, what was I passionate about and kind of finding some of those barriers. Do you have something on that? Yeah, go for that. I just have a slight correction to something I said before. Okay. Um, so the book is none greater. It's uh, the, uh, Anselm's argument for the existence of God basically what had this idea that like, if there's, if there's something we can conceive that's greater that that must be true of God. Right. Um, d- is he defending Anselm's constr- like construction of the God idea at all, or is he just kind of going into the attributes of God? Yeah, he's not really defending it. He's like, and and even the title "None Greater." It's not like he's spending a lot of time. He just kind of in the introduction says, "Hey, I'm using Anselm for this a lot. That's where I got the title, None Greater." And then like in other classes, I talked about it. Um, and then just from there goes into like a pretty straightforward orthodox view of the attributes of God. So it is quite good, but it's not really like if you're looking for something on Anselm, this isn't quite it. Mm, okay. But it's good. This is very much like a seity. A seity is this, 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 this. It means this, 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 this. Da-dup, da-dup, da-dup. It's very straightforward. Just want to make a clarification what I said. I, uh, I mentioned just before Shepherding a Child's Heart, uh, introducing Protestant social ethics. That's the book we didn't like. Yes. Um, the book that we were, that I'm kind of like a little met on, but was ultimately quite good, was Ethics as Worship, which is what you just talked about. And this is what happens when you take a class on ethics and all the books roughly bleed together and sound the same. You forget that one book was good, and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to clarify in case someone was like, wait, you're loosely okay with introducing present social ethics? What? Um, yeah, Jesse? Okay, um, I'm going to do two here and spend a little bit of time on this. American Kingpin. Um, it's a story about... You've been getting the cool titles. Yeah, uh, I, I have. Feel like. Thanks. There's more to come as well. American Kingpin is about the founder of the Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht. And when I say the Silk Road, I don't mean the spice trade route back in the day. I mean the Silk Road, a website for selling drugs. So Ross Ulbricht was a, a, a teenager, I guess, when he started out, or at least very early 20s, and was an extreme libertarian. Um he wasn't really out to make tons of money. He, he kind of was, but that wasn't really the goal. The goal was really basically in ex- his, his, his political views of extreme libertarianism and thinking that the government should not get to tell people what they buy and sell, especially with things that we put in our bodies like drugs. And so he started it. It blew up extremely quickly, and he was nearly a billionaire by the time he was in his early 20s. Uh, but of course, and but the interesting thing is because of his ideals, he and because he just didn't want to be tracked down by the IRS, he was basically living like almost functionally homeless, living in terrible uh, apartments in people's basements, but then was actually, um, and nobody knew his identity. He used the pseudonym, the Dread Pirate Roberts, um, which is a reference to the Princess Bride and how the Dread Pirate Roberts keeps getting replaced. He was trying to throw law enforcement off his trail so the story of how he evaded detection for so long the story of how he did eventually get caught insanely fascinating here's why i have mixed feelings about the books the book 
because um, the story is wildly fascinating. The book is written, it, it, the actual title of like the genre on Amazon or something is called nonfiction thriller. And it's written exactly like fiction. Like if you've ever read like a modern detective novel or something, it's exactly like that where it's like his heart rate quickened and stuff like that, which was, it had this twofold effect of making me not be able to put this book down. I was obsessed. I could not stop reading it. Um, but at the same time, I was really annoyed because I'm used to, I, I was used to reading biographies by people like Walter Isaacson where, you know, <laughs> with Steve Jobs, right? He doesn't just say, and then Steve Jobs said this. He'll be like, Steve tells me that he said this, but this person in this meeting remembers it this way. But then his second aunt actually says that he had the family get, you know, mm. the research is so on the table of how he got it. And this book, I was like, how could you possibly know that his heart rate quickened? And it was just driving me nuts, the whole book. Right. Also, in that vein, some of the stories of, like, let's say his, like, relationship history, even some, like, slightly sexual details are, like, in there when they didn't feel like they needed to be. And it felt like, again, it felt exactly like what modern thriller fiction reads like. The interesting thing is when I finally finished it and got to the end and he explains his research methods, you realize this was one of the most unique situations where this guy was a prolific journaler, journaled everything. And when the cops finally decrypted his laptop, they got access to 10 years of detailed daily journals. Meanwhile, a lot of his close friendships were people he texted really often in his regular life. And then for the, his employees on the Silk Road, because he had like tons of employees who worked on this website who didn't know his real name. They just communicated with him on the internet and lived in various parts of the world. All of those were some of his closest friendships as well. Mm. And he was texting them literally all day. He worked insane hours and was just constantly emailing them. So when we have direct quotations and even pretty good guesses at how he was feeling about stuff, it's huh. like, so suddenly it made sense that it was written. And there's almost no one else that you could write a book with that level of detail about what was going on in his brain. And it actually have a pretty good chance of being accurate. So here, here, here's, I guess, my caveat for recommending it. Like, I wish the language wasn't so bad and some of the details of his life that were more morally ambiguous were maybe less detailed in a, in, a, in that way. The book I read after that, and this is why I'm doing two, two at once, was called Tracers in the Dark. Real quick, can I get the book title again? I would, uh, American Kingpin. The next book I read, way more of the writing style I'm used to, is called Tracers in the Dark. I was just so fascinated by this, and this book had been recommended to me by a friend of mine who recently switched his legal career over to being in cybercrime. And this book is telling three stories of taking down cybercrime in the dark web. So the first one is is basically a recap, a way less detailed but still interesting recap of what I just talked about with Ross Ulbricht. Um, and then the second one is Alpha Bay, which is basically after the Silk Road got taken down by law enforcement. Spoiler alert: it does he does get caught eventually. I won't explain how he does get caught, but the next one that popped up afterwards was like five times the size. It's less interesting of a story because it's not the first one, but that one was huge. And the way law enforcement took it down was just so clever. It's like, I, I don't want to get into it, but it's like, this was another book that I couldn't put down because I was so fascinated at the interplay between these extremely clever criminals and these extremely clever law enforcement. Uh, it's called Tracers in the Dark because it's basically about how... Uh, Bitcoin was thought to be untraceable, and now we realize it's actually one of the most traceable currencies of all time because it, everything's on a ledger. Well, it's it's extremely complicated. The people who solve this are people who basically are just obsessed with puzzles and have a certain type of brain. Um, 
nerds exactly well that's the thing the whole thing is like a battle of two nerds there's like these extremely clever criminals some of the later stories in it were about um child pornography which these are quite disturbing obviously they don't get very detailed i would say it was very appropriately written not not too detailed but just the whole concept of it is extremely disturbing that those chapters were interesting because i i hate to admit this but a part of me sometimes was rooting for the the criminals um because i i do resonate i resonate no not with that what i'm saying is that chapter was way easier to just be like let's go with law enforcement like take them down like get them in prison um sometimes with the drug stuff i'm i'm ashamed to admit this parts of me was rooting for because i do i resonate with libertarianism i'm not a libertarian but i i get it theoretically i understand sort of the the principle behind it and then the fact they were fighting so hard for what they believed in even if i don't believe in what they believe in was was kind of inspiring and just the fact that they're so clever anyway that was just such a good book wow I, I loved Tracers in the Dark. So fascinating. If I was to read one of them, which one? Tracers in the Dark. Okay. Okay. Tra- because I think American Kingpin was more of a you can't put it down book, although I couldn't put either of them down. But American Kingpin was more of a you can't put it down book because it was so focused on one person. But And like the characters in that book were insanely vivid. Like I'm going to rem- I said that in Tracers in the Dark, the second book, the law enforcement was extremely clever. In American Kingpin, there was actually a lot of incompetence happening. And basically these cops who like two of them separately went dirty and and then two other ones were both doing a good job, but they wouldn't share information with each other. And they were being really stubborn and pigheaded about it. So there was like all these different like the NSA, the FBI, the CIA and the IRS were all investigating this separately and like refused to share information with each other. So it was, the characters in in that book were wildly vivid, both on the criminal and the law enforcement side. It it felt exactly like reading fiction. Cool. I literally just purchased it on, on Audible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kingpin, like the Traces in the Dark. Yeah, yeah. So if you yeah, ha- well, if you ha- if you had to read one American Kingpin, or sorry, if you had to read one Traces in the Dark, yeah. but American Kingpin was more entertaining. Just do you have it on your Audible? I do. Nice. I'm not going to purchase it. Okay. Um, we'll talk about it later. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> Sorry, I just loved those books. Speaking of cybercrime, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes! No, no, I'm not. I'm not I, I, I think it's funny, though, is that uh, you're talking about how they were, they were able to write this book that reads almost like a novel because of how well he kept his journals, mm-hmm. right? I think that's so interesting. So when the police finally catch Jacob, they're going <laughs> to... They're going to be able to write an absolute banger novel on Jacob's life. And now you see why I do what I Jacob do. Jacob keeps amazing journals. Yeah. What would you guys call a crime thriller about Jacob's life? Well, that slapped. <laughs> <laughs> the prison sentence? Or... <laughs> oh, it's life. Well, the, well, that slapped is that's right, what you right go in with. If, yeah. audience, dear workshop audience, if you have any bit. ideas, just we're, we're send it in. Yeah, we'll workshop that. It's fully off the cuff. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, I I agree. I, I honestly, I have no better alternatives. So to, to the title for your life, no, the, the thriller based on your journals. Unfortunately, at the moment, no. Okay. Um, Maybe you need to go commit some more crimes, and we'll get some material. <laughs> All right. Uh, my next book is Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Um, I hadn't read. Charles yeah. Dickens recently. This was recommended to me by someone who, by and large, is not a huge fan of Dickens. Uh, and she says that this is like, I don't want to misquote her or misrepresent her opinion, but that this is the Dickens she likes. And she thinks a part of it is because it's not 
actually typical Dickens. Um, I I don't know. I I recognize it as being Dickens. It's it's another one of his novels where he's talking about people in a social situation and he's sort of decrying the abuse of the poor and you know industrial England and the the, the things that were going on at that time. Right. It's very if you love Charles Dickens, this will be some familiar subject matter. But it's a really really good book. Um, and and as always with Dickens. He gives you some larger-than-life characters that are just you love to hate them and you love to love them and they're they're great characters. Cool. The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Oh gosh, this might be the fourth time, third time I've read it. I struggle. It's you. I'm I'm a I'm a Lewis fanboy as much as everybody is here in this room, and this book is constantly put forward as like. I mean, I, I have had seminary professors fully look me in the eye and be like, this is one of the most important books written in the 20th century. And I struggle to see why. I, I, I think I understand it mostly. I get the context, I think. But it's just, yeah, it doesn't land for me. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to chalk that up to me just not getting how important these themes are. But I, um, yeah, I'm just kind of like, okay, it's, uh, yeah, it's about education. And, and yeah, it's, it, yeah, I'm not going to go into it. Maybe you have some other thoughts, guys, but... We talked about this last book podcast too, where it's like, I feel like I should have gotten more out of that, and I wish I did, but I just didn't. Yep. So, next one for me, The Most Reluctant Convert by David C. Downing. Uh, this is such an interesting biography, uh, because, so it's Life of C.S. Lewis, a biography, but he does it through the lens of the characters C.S. Lewis is writing about. So, it's not following, like, it, like a timeline, which is like classic biography per se, but it's, it's following through C.S. Lewis's life kind of based on the characters that he's writing. So obviously Narnia would be some of the ones we would be most familiar with, but writing, uh, but also his other writings. So it's not a long biography. And I kind of walked away wishing I actually did get more of the like details of his life. Um, but it's just a really interesting way to like, think through C.S. Lewis as a person. Uh, so I'd recommend it to you guys. Like I read it a while ago now. So like a lot of the details are kind of like they've shed. Um, but this is a, this is definitely a biography I'm going to come back to, especially cause it's, it's only 194 pages. So it's not crazy long. It would be kind of interesting for someone to write a biography of Niagara through the lens of this podcast. That maybe is an incredibly dumb idea. But I'm just, if someone, like, even a hundred years from now, a complete outsider were to, like, just plow all the almost a hundred episodes of this, I wonder what landscape they would architect. Clearly not an accurate one. Like, I'm, I in no way intend this podcast to be an accurate representation of, like, the political and economic landscape of this country, or of this area, right? But it'd just be interesting what you would pull from the people around here how you would write it, I don't know that's some this may be a silly idea but it's kind of a fun idea for me to like play around with you know I'll throw one more book in here Liberty for All by Andrew T Walker already talked about it Okay uh my next book was Sandworm also by um Andy Greenberg who wrote Tracers in the Dark so after reading Kingpin and Traces in the Dark, I was like, okay, this is my thing now. I like reading about cybercrime. I'm going to go on a full-blown 
deep rabbit trail. So I was like, well, I liked his writing style, so I'm going to read Sandworm. Um, this is about the Russian hackers who simply through hacking caused physical damage to power grids in Ukraine and his theory that basically they're practicing to do this in the U.S. and that they're testing on non-NATO countries mm -hmm. to see if they can actually cause blackouts. So this is the first examples of like hacking causing. I, I know I know digital harm is physical harm. Like let's say someone steals your money from the bank. Yes, that's all just ones and zeros, but that is physical harm. But this is like, okay, this, a machine exploded and there was a power outage because of an, a phishing email that someone opened. Obviously, that's an oversimplification. Quite fascinating. I would say this is where I started to lose interest. And the, here's the reason. Here's the reason. <laughs> this it is was, thing. I'm going to learn about it. No, it was interesting. I know. This is where my cybercrime stopped for now. I'm, I also just had a lot of other books I had to read for a while, so it kind of took me out of the zone. But I did read these three back-to-back -back in like this series of like two weeks. Um, I couldn't put them down. This book was a little bit more boring. Here's the reason why. The other two books had such vivid characters and we, because most of the people that they talked about, they caught and so they know a lot about them. So the villains and the heroes, this was like such a huge team of, of law enforcement across the world trying to figure out who Sandworm was. So you didn't really get any details on any of the law enforcement. And then meanwhile, simultaneously, they have not caught these Russian people because Putin just shields them. He just says, oh, these are just rogue hackers. But it's like very clearly state-sponsored. Hmm. You just can't prove it, right? So none of this is actually pinned on him. Right. So we really, the villains are extremely faceless. The heroes are kind of faceless too. So this book just, if you're interested in Russia, if you're interested in hacking, great book. If not, don't read it. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at itsthevolk. Have a good one, guys.